It's good to see you this morning, especially here. This is where it all began for me back, back in 1981, although it does remind me of my aging. First time I gave a message in this, uh, we used to call this Sanctanasium. Is, uh, John and Kent were seven and five sitting right over there. They're 42 and 40 now. We used to have these folding chairs, and at the end of the service, we would go ahead and, and uh, fold up the folding chairs, put them against the wall, because the guys are going to show up play basketball on Monday night. And that's how we all began right, right here. So it, is, it brings back great memories and great to see you here this morning. You know, uh, as I age, and uh, things remind me of my aging, aging stinks. I mean, really, there's really not a whole lot good about it. Other than the fact, I, I've said that all, all wisdom is the accumulation of, boy, I'm not going to do that again. And you really do tend to reflect on some stuff. But there's a mystery that you become very aware of the older you get. And the mystery is there's something that's really important to all of us. And, and we, we, we kind of gear our whole lives around pursuing this one thing only to see for many people it begins to, to vaporize between your fingers. And you feel that you have this life and you really wonder, what was this thing all about? I'm talking about a deep sense of meaning. To live a life that has some sense of worthwhile, being a, a life that has purpose. Because you don't want to end your life and kind of went, boy, did I miss the whole point. So then we begin to start to worry about that. Does my life have meaning? Do I have any sense of purpose? Is my life even worth living? Would anybody else consider my life worth living? And so we look to others who we feel, well, they had it all. Howard Hughes, remember that name? Talk about living the fantasy life. He just basically possessed and had all the money. The man was one of the richest men in the world. When he died back in 1976, he left an estate of $2.3 billion. That's back in 1976. And he thought, this guy had it all. Talk about purpose and feeling of worth and importance and significance. Just after he died, magazine, Time Magazine wrote this about the end of his life. Quote, Hughes emerges from the hidden years as a tortured, troubled man who wallowed in self-neglect, lapsed into periods of near lunacy, lived without comfort or joy in prison-like conditions, and ultimately died from the lack of a medical device that his own foundation had developed. See, that doesn't seem like he's ending very well. And yet he defined his life like anybody else would define their life as the life to live. It's interesting, in the end of the article, it mentions how he's commemorated. Las Vegas, the casinos all became silent in memory of this significant life. And I quote again, for a brief moment, the casinos fell silent. Housewives stood uncomfortably clutching their paper cups full of coins at the slot machines. The blackjack games paused. And at the crap table, stickmen cradled the dice in the crooks of their wands. Then the pit boss looked at his watch, leaned forward and whispered, Okay, roll the dice, he had his minute. What is wrong with this picture? The worth of his life, the significance, his contribution to living, he had his minute. You know, you kind of think there's got to be another way. Holly has a very close friend up in Northern California who has cancer. Contracted this kind of cancer back 14 years ago. She was given about five years to live. 
Because of the intimacy of their friendship, Polly said, you know, every week I'm going to send you a card, a humorous card to make you laugh out loud. It's been over 14 years now, and for 14 years, every week, Holly has sent her a different card to make her laugh and to go through some of the pain with laughter. Well, one of the last ones she sent, I took a little peek at, and I was interested in it because it's actually a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale of a princess. Once upon a time, there was a princess who was like a size four or something, She could eat and drink whatever she wanted and always stayed really skinny and had flat, firm abs, even though she never went to the gym. Every time she tried on jeans, the very first pair fit perfectly. She lived in a great, big, beautiful castle with her handsome, multi-millionaire husband who was busy all the time buying her giant diamonds and taking her to Hawaii and giving her foot massages. And telling her how beautiful she was. Well, one day, she was eaten by a dragon. And no one cared. The inn. That's kind of a Scottsdale deal. So you begin to start reflecting on your life. Am I heading in the right direction on this thing? Does my life have some sense of meaning that somebody would think that there's some worth, somebody might care about it? And Jesus wants to deal with this because he knows we worry about it. And worry doesn't get us there. And he wants us to make sure we are no longer living in a fog, but we know exactly who we are, where we're going, and what this life is all about, and what gives it meaning and, and purpose. And he gives it to us right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Cha- Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is the summary of the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, everything that Jesus taught in principle, you'll find right there in the Sermon on the Mount. And here in chapter 6, he wants to deal with this issue of worry. Because the word, or even our word worry, worry comes from an old German term that means strangulation. That's all the worry does. It strangles you emotionally and in every other way. Dr. Charles Mayo, founder of the Mayo Clinics, wrote, Worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I've never met a man or known a man who died of overwork. But I have known a lot who died of worry. So some great theologian comes along and says, well, then the key to meaningful life is don't worry, be happy. Isn't that the most ludicrous thing you've ever heard? (laughs) Just don't worry. Just be happy. Well, they're right about worry. It doesn't really take us anywhere. It's been said that 40% of our worries are about things that never happen. Another 30% concerned about the things in the past that you can't do anything about anyway. Still another 20% spent on needless worry about health and petty concerns. That leaves about 8% of good stuff to worry about. Because we do live in a broken world. There's lots of things to worry about. Our, our culture, our economy, ecology, nuclear holocaust, racial prejudice, terrorism, youth abuse, alcoholism, breakdown of families, on and on. Oh yeah, this isn't about sticking your head in the sand. We live in a broken world. And there's lots of stuff out there to worry about. And we all deal with worry in different ways. Some of us mock it with humor. (laughs) Hello, I'm Cajun. What do I say? Others will cry about it, whine about it, eating some Medicaid with drugs, anger, depression, entertainment. 
But the fact is, we live in a broken world. There's things to worry about, but worry doesn't get us to a meaningful life. So Jesus wants us to talk about what is the essence of worry. Why? It's not about the symptoms of all the different things we worry about, but why do we worry in the first place? What's the root of this whole thing? And he picks it up right here by asking the question, why worry? In chapter 6 of Matthew, beginning in verse 25, listen to what he says. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. As to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, not for your body as to what you shall put on. If is not life more than food in the body than clothing? He begins, you notice, he says, for this reason. Now this doesn't make any sense. He's talking about don't worry about the food, you know, and drink and covering your body. And, you know, for us, we don't worry about that anyway because we know where our next meal is coming. We know what we got in the closet But back in these days, if you were living in a day that you weren't sure about your next meal and you weren't sure about having anything to wear, it'd probably keep you awake at night. But it's deeper than that because he says, for this reason. That means, what reason? What he just said in verse 24. Notice he says in the verse just previously, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, money. Therefore, he says, for this reason I say to you. In other words, he's saying there's there's just basically one of two things that's going to be the boss of your life. That is your Lord, your master, what you pursue, what drives you. It's either going to be God or it's going to be money. And our fallback's always money because we know money will provide food for me to eat and something for me to drink and clothing for me to wear. And yet, even though I'm driven by money that can provide the things I think I really need to survive, I worry about it still. And so it doesn't seem like having money as my God, even though I, I, I believe it's going to provide what I need, Why do I still worry? It doesn't purge worry from my psyche. And Jesus says there's another way here. Five times he says, stop being anxious. Stop being anxious. Stop stop being anxious. Just in these 10 verses. You know what the word anxious means? It means to be split apart. It talks about when your fear and your, your anger just goes, all your emotions go in different directions and it creates this stress, this distress. So you're living in the fog. You get paralyzed. You don't know what to do. You know, what is the right thing? What's the significant thing? What could I do today that has some meaning to life? So you live in this fog of anxiousness. And notice he says, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious over your life. Doesn't use a normal word for life, the word bios, like biology. Animals have bios. He's not talking about survival here. Is that all you want for your life is I survived my life? He says, uses, changes the word to psuche. Psuche speaks of the experience of living here, the experience of knowing you live in a broken world, but how are you going to respond to the things out there that you could worry about, but is there another way? And Jesus says there is another way. He says, let me walk you through this. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. Yet they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to your lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, and they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all of the glory, did he clothe himself, not like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, is he not much more concerned about you? Then he has a little jab here. O men of little faith. Literally, it's O little faith ones. He says, you're missing the point on who you're letting be your God, money or God. Notice he says, birds. He says, you know, birds give a lot of energy to, to gathering food. You know, I, I do my research for these messages, and I, I, I thought, okay, what do you mean the birds? They fly around and they don't worry. So I thought, okay, I'm going to sit on a park bench and watch the birds for a while. You know, it's interesting when you watch birds because they, they know you're looking. Of course, then the guy next door looks like, what are you looking at? I'm looking at the birds. Leave me alone. And I, my undergraduate degree, my BA is in psychology. I know what worry looks like. They're fluttering around. They're all ADHD. But the fact still is, I don't see them worrying about this thing. Then he says in verse 27 that, you know, by worry, you can't add a cubit to, to your stature. Now, cubit's 18 inches, usually from your elbow to the top of your finger. And so either he's saying that you can't add to your height, you can't get taller because of worry. Most likely the Hebrewism is that you can't add to your life by worry. If anything else is going to shorten it. Psalm 139 says, don't you know the days ordained for you to live on this earth already established when you were yet in your mother's womb. So you're not going to die a day sooner, you're not going to die a day late. Say, oh, but you know, here it talks about this thing of, of the birds, and the birds don't worry because God feeds the birds. Well, I just happened to this last week, driving down the street. I looked down in the, cor- on the curb, and there was a dead bird. <laughs> so what's this thing about God feeds the birds, but sometimes those birds fall out of the sky, and they're dead. So how does Jesus deal with that? Well, he does later in chapter 10 of Matthew, verse 29. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He knows. Here's the point. They don't worry because they're not afraid of the will of God. As long as the God's will is for them to fly, they fly. When it's time for them to fall to the ground... God knows, they know God knows, and therefore they are not afraid of the will of God, they embrace the will of God, so they don't worry. For us, that's a different story. Most of us are petrified of the will of God. I mean, I talk to Christians all the time, and they're convinced God's will, he wants to break your legs, make you play the flute, put a bun on your head, send you to Africa, you'll never have babies. Because we know the will of God is something that is Horrible and horrific. You know, I, I know people are afraid of the will of God because Paul, in Rome, the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 11, he says, don't you know all that God has done for you? When we were indifferent to God, he reached out and provided for our forgiveness by sending his own son to receive the judgment of our sinfulness. And then not only did he forgive us, then he placed the spirit within us, secured us, 
He declared us children of God, that we have Abba Father, a relationship with God as a Heavenly Father. And in chapter 12, Paul says, now I'm begging you, I'm urging you on the mercies, all that God has done for you so far, brethren. He says, present your body a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable worship. Worship God by once and for all, the air is tense. Once and for all, make up your mind, present your body to God. You say, all right, here it is. What do you want to do with it? Well, he says, stop being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, prove something. God wants us to present our bodies to God in our life to prove something to ourselves and to everybody else who watches our life. Say, prove what? Well, read the next of the verse. Prove that the will of God is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Because most people are afraid of the will of God. But if someone sees our life and we're not fearful of the will of God, we embrace the will of God. I will live and fly as long as God wants. When he wants me to fall to the ground, I die. I die. I don't worry about it. Because I trust my heavenly father will know. He knows everything's happening in my life. And I trust him that whatever he chooses to do with my life, I will embrace. Therefore, I don't fear it. Jesus goes on, he says, you worry about clothing, lilies of the field. It's a reference to the wild flowers that grace the hillside of Galilee. And he says, you know, you notice the beauty of the flowers. They're more beautiful than, than what Solomon, the richest man at the time, could have worn. Have you ever noticed the colors and flowers? They all go together well. Unlike the way many of us guys dress. And you notice you've never seen a flower that's, that is plaid with an opposite plaid for a stem. You only see that on guys from New York. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And yet, God, he, Jesus says, these flowers, they, they're alive for a while, then they die. And they're used for a furnace, basically an oven to burn something, to heat, to cook something. And Jesus says, don't you understand your heavenly Father loves you, has invested in you, don't be afraid of his will. So you little faith ones, let me tell you how not to worry, he says. Verse 31, 32. Go back to Matthew 6. He says, do not be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or with what shall we clothe ourselves? Because our, we're always gonna fall back to money because money can provide what I think I need, so money becomes my God, my driving force of my life. Anything I can do to accumulate more resources, that will give me everything I need, and so my life will have worth, and I won't worry. But the reality is, guess what? We worry all the more. So he says, for all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, I call this necessary narcissism. Because the model for most people is simply everybody for themselves, get as much as you can get, grab it, and use others to get it for yourself. He says, don't you realize your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things? So he says, here's how you not worry. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble for its own. So he says, let me tell you how not to be worrying. It has to do with what are you seeking? It really has to do with how do you define your life? 
Have you ever heard of a man named Viktor Frankl? Some of you older ones will. Viktor Frankl was a very well-known, in the 40s, in Venice, in Austria, a well-known psychiatrist and, and, and neurologist. When the Nazis came into Austria, his family was arrested. He was placed into two different concentration camps, Dachau and Auschwitz. His wife, with his unborn child, died in one of those concentration camps. His parents were executed. When finally the Allies came through, he was released. But released with questions. A lot of the Jews had been executed, they had no choice. But a lot of the Jews didn't survive. They died, and many of them survived. He wanted to know why. Why did some survive and others did not? He went on later in the late 50s, he wrote a classic book called Man's Search for Meaning. He's not a Christian. But from his observation, he came to this conclusion. If human beings define themselves as takers, in other words, the worth and the significance of my life is what I have and what I've gotten and what I got from you, and the more stuff I can get, the more important I am, the more significant in my life. He says the problem with those takers is you can't get a lot of stuff in concentration camps. And when you're sitting there and you define yourself as what you can get as a taker and you're in a situation you can't take anything, you lose the definition, the meaning of your life and you die because you have no hope. And they're the ones who did not survive. But the givers, those who define their life as basically the essence of meaning, the essence of purpose, is when your soul has a sense of usefulness and you only have a sense of usefulness when you're giving, not when you're taking. And when you're stuck in a concentration camp, there's lots of opportunities for you to give and thus there's lots of opportunities for you to have a deep sense of still usefulness and you define yourself as this even as the Apostle Paul wrote in his last will and testimony in 2 Timothy to young Timothy, he says, Timothy, it's like a big household and believers are vessels that God uses. Some are gold and silver and they're used for noble use and others more like clay, common use. So Timothy, purge yourself of these things so that you might be useful to the master. Well, then they have this deep sense of meaning because I had this deep sense of being useful to the master, how do I do that? Jesus said right here, here's how you purge worry out of your life. You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now what does that mean? To seek his kingdom. Well, Jesus helped us with that previously in this chapter, chapter six, when he gave us the Lord's prayer. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, now when you pray, pray like this. Or if you're Lutheran, pray this. But our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lord, may people begin to hallow you, treat you as important, treat you as holy. Then he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it's already where? Done in heaven in the rest of the universe. We're on a rebel planet. 
To seek the kingdom of God is very simple. Instead of being fearful of the will of God, we seek it. We embrace it. As many years as God gives me on this earth, do I care whether I live another six months or ten years? I really don't care. Because I totally trust my heavenly Father because He cares. Meanwhile, I am freed up of that worry and I just not only am not afraid of God's will, I embrace it, I pursue it. That's what it means to seek the kingdom, his kingdom first. Well, then what is this and his righteousness? That's an interesting word. The Greek word is dikaios. It's sometimes translated righteousness. Sometimes it means to justify. It's an architectural term. When he built this building uh, and they drew the plans and they wanted to have a right angle, a corner, They'd take two lines and they'd be connected at the end and soon those two lines were at 90 degrees. They were justified. That is, in a right relationship. When God created us, he created us because he had in mind a right relationship with him. What relationship did he want with us? Well, he's the creator, we're creatures. Yeah, but God's got all kinds of creatures. He's got dogs, cats, worms, bugs, and you. But Genesis 1.27 said, God created us, both male and female, in his own image. We have a child in your own image. Thus, God wants a relationship as a father to a child, not a creator to a creature. Because if that's all the relationship all creatures do are either indifferent to their creator, appeasing the creator, fearful of the creator, but a child... Why do you think within the Trinity, the first person, second person of Trinity, they could have described their relationship any way they want? Batman, Robin, Mutt and Jeff, Tom and Jerry, make ice cream. The reality is it was father, son. Father, son. That's why in John 1.12, Jesus says, many as believe in Jesus Christ, to them God gave the authority to become the children of God. In Romans 8, says you receive the, the, the spirit of adoption we cry out, Abba, Father. That's why 2 Corinthians 6, God says, I'll be a father to you and you'll be sons and daughters to me. That's why Jesus kept saying, your heavenly father, your heavenly father, this is the relationship he wants with you. And you know what a child, what the deepest desire of a child that has a father? That child desires to honor his father, to honor her father. And that was the change, the Spirit of God changed in us. You see, when you came to Christ, not only were your sins forgiven, but you were given a new heart. Spirit of God created a desire in you you never had before. Because all of a sudden, now you have this deep sense and desire to honor God as your Father. So what does it mean to seek His righteousness? To seek the right relationship that God desires for us to have with Him. And that's a relationship of a son, a daughter, to a father with a deep desire to honor him. So daily, my life, I'm not afraid of the will of God. I embrace it. I invite it. I pursue it. I seek his kingdom. And as far as his righteousness, I make my decisions based on whether or not I believe, will this honor my heavenly father? If I say this, if I go there, if I do this, if I vote this, will this honor my heavenly father? And guess what I don't have time to do? Worry, because I'm not in a fog. I am crystal clear on knowing exactly what God has called me to do. 
And talk about a deep sense of usefulness to the master. <laughs> if I embrace his will and pursue his honor, the knowledge do have I purged worry out of my life. I am gaining a remarkable deep sense of purpose and meaning for my life, the life that God has given me. But you see, what if I feel like I'm ending up with a short end of the stick on this thing? I'm only thinking about... Well, do you remember Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 to 23? Of course you don't. That's why I brought it with me. (laughs) The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. This is your heavenly Father being described. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. You know, we don't get a lot of fog here in the desert, do we? About 25, 30 years ago, there were some rains and we got some fog for a couple days. It freaked everybody out. But I read a report that a dense fog, extensive enough to cover seven city blocks, 100 feet deep, is composed of less than one glass of water, divided into 60,000 million droplets. You want to paralyze an entire city? Just need a gallon. That's what worry is. Worry just creates a fog in our lives. And because money is our fallback, we kind of think, am I going to have enough? Am I going to grab enough so that I can get what I need so I can get what I need to eat and get what I need to wear and get what I need to drink so I can survive life? Only the end that I've wasted my life is a worthless endeavor. But we're not in fog. We know who we are. We're children of a heavenly father. We know why we are. We're here basically to embrace God's will and to pursue the right relationship to want to honor our father. You know, this last week was a little disappointing, wasn't it? What came down from the Supreme Court? Got a lot of Christians really mad. They want to make sure I know they're mad. I guess that's my job, to know they're mad. (laughs) So I've asked them, so what are you going to do with your madness? Especially when James says, the anger of man accomplishes nothing. Solomon says in Proverbs 15, 1, soft answer turneth away wrath, grievous words stir up anger. You want to know why being angry isn't going to work? Like I've always said, whoever frames the argument wins. And when the argument is framed about civil rights, well, anything you say will be a statement against civil rights. And no wonder you're going to be accused of being bigots intolerant, haters. So we could all get angry. All we're going to do is fit the profile. I love what our pastor said in response. Go to the uh, website. You see it's right there. I got the email. I love our pastor. Jamie, he's a little Viking. I'm so proud of him. Wonderful response. I want to read just a portion. He said this, Our church has a strong history. Our church has a strong history of standing firm and being loving amidst a changing culture. We have historically demonstrated an abiding commitment to biblical truth. 
while simultaneously loving and embracing all people, whether they agree with us on truth or not. So what do we do? Our pastor tells us that we should pray. Let's pray for our nation, our leaders, our churches. He says we're to unite. Let us stay unified in our commitment to biblical truth and Christ-like love. And let us act. Story's not done. And we do have a vote coming. But there's something else here. What are you going to say when you're asked? I mean, this week, you probably have people who are going to ask, what do you think about the Supreme Court's decision? How are you going to respond? Peter in 1 Peter 1.15 says, Now sanctify Christ as your Lord. Show people that Jesus Christ is your Lord, always being ready to give an apologia, a defense, a reason for the hope that lies within you, but do it with respect and reverence. And Nero was the president at that time. So what is the response? What do you say? Tell you what I say. So, Daryl, what do you think about the Supreme Court decision? Makes me sad that we have a government that has no desire to embrace the will of God and his design has no desire to want to honor God as their heavenly father and of our nation. And therefore to reject that God designed for a man and a woman to come together and have a child and produce a family so the child has the right to a mother and a father. That makes me sad because we're going to have children that will not have that right of a mother and a father. And so I pray. I pray for the children. That's how I feel about it. It's interesting. I cannot find anywhere here that says God has given us the responsibility to bring judgment. I've looked. I don't know any verses that God has given us, his children, the responsibility to bring judgment. At the same time, I can show you all over the place that we're given the responsibility to speak the truth in love. We don't bring judgment, but we don't stop speaking truth and what God's word says. But how do you do that in love? Do you remember when the guys took that woman caught in adultery, in the very act of adultery, which I'm wondering, what do those guys do over lunch? Stick their nose in everybody's tent looking for people committing adultery? A little voyeurism there. But anyhow, they grab the lady, throw her before Jesus, trying to trip Jesus up. Because if he says stoner, well, then uh, the Romans are going to get him. If he says don't stoner, then they're going to say you hate Moses. What's he going to do? Remember when Jesus said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And those guys loaded with rocks. After Jesus kind of swirls in the dirt for all, gives him a little time to think, they start dropping the rocks. Did you ever wonder why they began to drop the rocks? Was it because all of them had committed adultery? No, I would bet a wager none of them ever committed adultery. Then why did they drop the rocks? Because they realized the sinfulness of their sin was just as sinful as the sinfulness of her sin. And when we realize God's mercy and grace 
and the sinfulness of our own sin, that will keep us humble. And when we speak the truth of God's forgiveness, we'll do it in love. We don't bring judgment, but we do speak the truth, always mindful of God's mercy on our own sin. Does this make sense? Then let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we're not left in a fog or confusion about our lives. And Lord, you know we fall back on making mammon, money, our God, because we think it can provide all the things that we need to eat and to drink and to clothe ourselves. But Father, we still worry. And it doesn't work. And our lives seem empty and we end up with the regret of worthlessness. And and maybe some of us get a minute, our minute. Or maybe we're eaten by a dragon and really nobody cares. Father, thank you that you've taken us out of the fog. That we need not have to worry. That we have a heavenly Father who knows every hair on our head, knows our name. And therefore we can trust your will is something good, perfect, complete. We need not be fearful of your will. But rather we can embrace it as we seek your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we can embrace a life that desires to honor you in all that we do that we might live out righteousness as sons and daughters of a heavenly father. Lord, may we walk worthy of this. Purge worry from us that our lights can shine in this darkness. And God's people said, amen. Amen.